From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Mayan Silver, today speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of wispolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, J.R., nice to chat with you again. Oh, thanks for having me. So a slice of Republicans in the state are unhappy with Wisconsin's nonpartisan head of elections, and there have been some developments in that saga lately. Before getting into the latest developments, can you give us a short synopsis of what Megan Wolf does and what some in the GOP have against her? Well, she's the administrator of the Elections Commission, so basically she's our, our top elections official. And her job is to run the agency and to carry out the directives of the six-member Wisconsin Elections Commission. Remember, that is a six-member body made up equally of Democrats and Republicans. And the biggest beef a lot of Republicans have is just how the 2020 election was run. The challenge there is that for Wolf is a lot of what they're unhappy about are things that she did at the direction of the commission. For example, she wasn't the one who decided not to send, spend, send special voting deputies into nursing homes to help those residents vote. That was a vote of the commission. She is not the one who told clerks they should look to fill in missing uh, address information from witnesses of for those voting absentee. That was a directive of the commission, but she was the one who carried it out. Now, there are some things that you know she did on her own, like she recognized some best practices, for example, when it came to using uh, private money to help run elections or cover election costs. But for the most part, the things that Republicans are most unhappy about are things that the commission voted on and she did at their behest. That said, she's become the focus, a lot of you know, the attention, uh, a lot of the kind of outrage from people who believe the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. And there's now this kind of like push in some GOP circles to get rid of her, even though if you talk to Republicans, they'll acknowledge that, yeah, you know, a lot of what she did was not you know, her own doing. A lot of their clerks, local clerks, say she does a good job, but there's just this kind of push among some very passionate Republicans to get rid of her. Okay, so the latest developments are that the Senate had set up a confirmation hearing for tomorrow on a new four-year term for Wolf, and that's after the Elections Commission, which is three Republicans and three Democrats, voted 3-0 to re-nominate her with the three Democrats abstaining. Um, They didn't want to send the nomination to the state Senate, and so the recent development is that Attorney General Josh Call has issued an opinion that the Senate shouldn't bother holding that hearing to approve or reject Wolf, that she should be able to remain in the position indefinitely. Can you explain all this? Sure. So state law says that you have to have a majority of the commission to nominate somebody to be the administrator. During the vote uh, in June, the Democrats said, look, that means you have to have four votes out of the six members, no matter who's voting and who's not, to nominate somebody. We're abstaining. That leaves you short of four votes. Ergo, there's no reappointment. Megan Wolf remains in this position indefinitely. And they cited a state Supreme Court ruling from last summer with Fred Prane, who was the Wausau dentist who refused to step down from his term as a member of the Natural Resources Board. It went to the state Supreme Court, which laid down a definition of a vacancy. So the Democrats say, hey, she's there. Devin Lemahue, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, pushed this motion on the floor of the Senate the last night before they uh, broke for a while, back in June, that declared the 3-0 vote was enough, that basically that they were now taking this nomination and it was before the Senate. He said he got legal advice that three votes was enough because it was majority of those voting. 
by majority of the commissioners, he, said, he argued, that were required. Well, Call, in this letter last week, said, no, you, you've got it wrong. Uh, the Democrats and the commission had it right. It requires a majority of the commissioners, not those voting, but the commissioners, i.e. four votes, to nominate somebody. And he pointed to a separate piece of state law that says if the commission wants to remove an administrator, it's majority of those voting. He said, look, lawmakers right there in statute spelled out two different standards. So ergo, it's clear they meant for majority of the entire commission, not just those voting, to nominate some, to put somebody forward for this position. Ergo, you guys should drop this. You guys don't have power over it. And look, I don't know what's right or wrong in this situation, but what I can tell you is if the Senate Republicans go forward with this process and try to remove Megan Wolf, it's going to end up in court. And the question is, how is a court going to rule? We had the Supreme Court issue that decision, the Prane case last summer, but that was a 4-3 conservative majority. Now we have a 4-3 liberal majority. Will they rule differently with this or have a different standard and really kind of a Fascinating in the weeds thing is Josh Call last summer was arguing that no, Fred Prane shouldn't be allowed to serve in this in this position anymore. He should be pushed out. Would he now argue the opposite with Megan Wolf if it came to a court case uh, after losing that case? It'd really be fascinating to watch. Well, I guess one difference is that there's actually some precedent now with the court actually ruling against Call. So, I mean, that that wouldn't be that unusual for him to flip his position, I guess. Yeah, uh, possibly. You know, the court hello had ruled 50 years ago that you can continue serving in a position until your um, replacement is confirmed. So it's just going to be interesting to watch if if Call adopts that line of thinking. And by the way, the three liberals who were on the court last summer all voted the opposite. They didn't believe that Fred Prince would continue serving. So how would they take a you know view this issue now um, if there was a lawsuit? Would they continue to follow that precedent? Or say, no, 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 we were right back last summer and we argued that there was a vacancy and therefore she has to go. So what's the way to avoid a lawsuit? <laughs> Good question. Uh, what I'm watching with the Senate now is they have the public hearing tomorrow. Um, will the Senate have a, a executive session, we call it, where they, they vote on Megan Wolf and will that be enough you know, to kind of signal their opposition or will there be a floor vote? Um, because I think the leadership knows if there's a floor vote and Wolf is removed, at least according to that vote, there's going to be a lawsuit. And then what happens? Because remember, we've got an election, a fairly important one, coming up in all of about, oh, you know, 13, 14 months. It is not a great look for Wisconsin to have a vacancy or a dispute over who the top election official is. We could be the eye of the storm once again um, nationally. So it, it's a really kind of a, a, t- a tough situation right now for everybody involved. You're tuned into Capital Notes on WUWM. This is Maya Jan Silver speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. So in another example of kind of like a nonpartisan position turned partisan, GOP legislators have filed a motion to force liberal back Justice Janet Protosiewicz off a pair of redistricting lawsuits. They want her to totally recuse herself based on donations she received from the state Democratic Party and past comments that the current lines are rigged for Republicans. What should we know about this? Well, typically what happens with recusal motions is the court refers that motion to the justice targeted and says, okay, here, make up your mind. Because the standard has been for a long time with the court that it is up to any judge or justice to decide if he or she can hear a case. End of story. They don't usually vote to try to remove somebody. Protosiewicz set a Tuesday uh, deadline for anybody who wants to kind of weigh in on this request to you know be heard. 
she'll take those uh, opinions into consideration and then uh, make a decision. But what I'm kind of looking down the road is what happens here if she stays in the case and there is a new map put in place by the Supreme Court. If you read that recusal motion, there's a lot of talk about a 2009 U.S. Supreme Court decision. It's called Caperton. There's a West Virginia uh, justice who, during his campaign, a wealthy uh, contributor gave $3 million over all the effort to help this guy get elected. I mean, a small donation to his campaign directly, a big donation to like $2.5 million to a PAC helping him and the rest in independent expenditures. And the Supreme Court back then said, look, that, that was not appropriate. That judge should not have sat on that case. That's an extreme example. Um, and they vacated the decision. But now fast forward, so you look at the recusal motion, it cites that case extensively about like, look, you know, there was $3 million bucks in that case. We're talking $10 million that the state Democratic Party gave to per se, which either through direct contributions or in-kind donations, you know, this crosses a line. Um, if you look at that 2009 ruling, though, from the Supreme Court, the only three justices left on the court who were in the, in that case were all conservatives, and they all voted in the minority against the standard. So how would they view a appeal on a ruling they didn't agree with from 14 years ago? Fascinating question. But what might be more important for Republicans is, can they just slow things down? And what I say that is, if you go back and look at the 2021 to 22 kind of saga with the redistricting lawsuit, the Elections Commission said, look, we need maps by mid-March, early April, to be able to administer the election appropriately. Um, if Republicans can at least slow this whole process down, push it past March, April, May into June, maybe it gets to a point where there's not enough time for new lines for the 2024 elections. Then that could give you the opportunity to try to win back control of the court in 2025 with Ann Walsh Bradley, liberal, up for election that year. Uh, maybe get you the 2026 cycle. I mean, there's all kinds of what ifs in this scenario. But in the end, it might be about slowing things down, just trying to avoid new maps being in place for 2024. I mean, we assume this liberal majority is going to overturn the lapse. I mean, maybe it's the wrong thing to think, but everybody I talk to thinks that this court, if it gets a redistricting suit before it, and takes up the issues, will vote to overturn the current maps and put new ones in place. So what difference does it make that the state Democratic Party has donated that $10 million to Protosewitz's campaign in the past, but isn't a party to the redistricting suits? Does that make a difference in the recusal motion? The Republicans argue no, because they say there's, you, you can draw an easy line from the interests of the Democratic Party to the candidates who would benefit if there were new lines in place to the Democratic voters who are the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. They're arguing there's no difference, and it would be silly, in their words, essentially, to suggest the party has no interest in this case. There's also a very interesting uh, argument in there that Protosewicz has a personal interest in ruling against the maps because she campaigned, talking about how they were rigged, and the argument goes from Republicans that she made a, a campaign pledge, essentially, to uh, voters, and if she doesn't uh, overturn those maps, she would pay a price politically when she sought re-election. So she has to kind of meet this campaign promise. It's it's a unique argument, but again, uh, it's just putting everything you think of in there to say there's a problem with her here in this case. Also, I've heard some Democrats argue that all we're seeing is an effort by conservatives to diminish the court, to say, look, whatever comes out of this court, you can't trust it. It's basically rigged against us. Uh, this process is, you know, not fair and trying to diminish and undercut the court because it's got a new liberal majority versus the old conservative one.
I see. So we're looking real long-term, big picture with, with these developments. So finally, Milwaukee hosted a big GOP debate last week. It was the first one of the 2024 presidential primary cycle. Eight candidates and no Trump. I spoke with GOP voters at a watch party in Milwaukee, and a lot of them were open to non-Trump candidates and said that the economy was their big issue. What are you hearing from Republicans in the state about that debate, how it went, and what their opinions were, and whether it changed anything? Just that, you know, there wasn't really a moment that people go, ah, that's going to live on for, in, you know, in, in history as like the big moment that changed the trajectory of this race, in part because Trump wasn't there. So while there were comments about Trump, they don't have a chance to really go after him directly or to try to pull him down to their level. And so people really kind of question, is there an opportunity at this point to change this race, to have it not just be, you know, Trump being the presumptive nominee, but really try to challenge him? And, you know, you're seeing a couple numbers pop up here and there of Nikki Haley doing better, or Ron DeSantis, you know, improving his stock, but we're not seeing Trump's support crater. And it's worth noting that, you know, I got mixed mixed opinions from people about whether Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson really took a lot away from the debate itself. But him turning himself in the next day to the authorities in Georgia, it changed the whole conversation that wasn't really much about the debate anymore, right? It became all about what's going on with Trump and the mugshot and all that, you know, the timing for the trial. It really sucked uh, all the oxygen out there because when you have a debate, you're hoping for that big moment that goes viral you can put into a, a paid media campaign. And two, to have a lot of chatter about that performance go on for days afterward to help build you up. Well, Trump kind of nixed that opportunity for that balance by, you know, the debate and changing the conversation from that to all about his charges. Well, it's interesting that for most people that would be a negative turn in the conversation, but it <laughs> yeah. didn't really seem to yeah. change much. All right. Well, thanks for the insights, JR. And thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com, speaking with me, WUWM's Maayan Silver. Listen for our segments with J.R. Ross every other Monday with an extended segment on Lake Effect, and check out the Capital Notes podcast wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>